0: Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and if there was one thing I noticed as I was becoming Catholic, as I was journeying into the Catholic Church, was how little I knew about Catholicism from actual Catholic sources. This podcast is meant to fill that gap. We're here to have Catholic conversations with Catholic thinkers about Catholic topics from the heart of the Church. No misinformation here. And this episode is a doozy in that respect. I'm joined by Dr. Abigail Favalli to talk about gender identity and feminism and how it squares with the Catholic Church. It's a great episode, and I have a little story to tell you about this guest, actually. I'd read a number of Dr. Favalli's articles in Notre Dame's Church Life Journal. She writes so well, so poignantly, about gender identity issues and feminism and squares those with orthodox Catholic teaching. She's fantastic at combining and illuminating those two aspects. And... I'd seen her in a number of places, actually. I'd heard her on a few other podcasts and some lectures on YouTube and that kind of thing. And when I booked her, I hadn't actually made the connection that she was the one who wrote those articles that I loved so much from the Church Life Journal. When I put the two and two together and realized who she was, I was ecstatic. I couldn't believe I'd secured her as a guest to talk about such an interesting and important and relevant topic. And she did not disappoint. It's a fantastic interview. And I think what I love the most about this interview actually isn't really to do with the subject in particular, but more the idea, the experience of the Catholic convert. I think Dr. Favalli underscores a feeling that I have felt for a long time and tried to describe myself. It's the idea of being able to relax in the arms of the Catholic Church. This feeling of freedom in knowing that maybe I don't have all my individual theology worked out. Maybe I don't understand all the nuances of church teaching, as was the experience of Dr. Favalli in her conversion. She, as she says and as she writes in her book, didn't have everything figured out when she became Catholic. But there's this sense of wonder, this sense of awe, this sense of immense eternal and spiritual security in knowing that you're part of a church that affirms certain teachings and says that those teachings are affirmed by the Holy Spirit. A church that says it has the authority to say that kind of thing. And there's something immensely incredible. Immensely beautiful about that experience. And I think in this interview, Dr. Favalli puts a point on that so well. A point that I've been trying to make for a long time. That there is this security in knowing that you don't have to, I don't have to work out everything I believe. All I have to do is trust that the church teaches what it says it teaches. And that that teaching is protected from error is safe, is guarded by the Holy Spirit to be the truth, the same message that Jesus delivered 2,000 years ago and continues to impart in our hearts. It's an amazing feeling and this interview is a great testament to that feeling. Please listen and enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Abigail Favalli. She's a convert to the Catholic faith, the director of the William Penn Honors Program, studying the great books at George Fox University. She is a regular contributor to First Things Magazine and the Church Life Journal and the author of Into the Deep, an Unlikely Catholic Conversion. Hello, Abigail. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here hi thanks for having me i'm really excited to have you on the show it's been a little bit of uh, uh, in progress for a little bit and i've been looking forward to a conversation for a long time so i'm happy to finally Mm -hmm. have you yeah me too so I'm an evangelical convert like you, and I love mm-hmm. conversion stories. I think it's kind of a little bit like group therapy, I think. <laughs> and uh, you've chronicled your journey in uh, a fantastic book, Into the Deep, and Unlikely Catholic Conversion. And I wonder if you can give us kind of a quick sketch of your own story, because I know that your conversion journey was through a bit of a different route than I think most. And I mm-hmm. know... At least to some degree, it involves a bit of our topic today, which is the idea of feminism and gender identity uh, and our Catholic lenses. So Mm -hmm. what do you think?
1: Sure. Uh, So I was, like like you mentioned, I was raised an evangelical Christian. I grew up in the Intermountain West and primarily in the Mormon belt in Utah and eastern Idaho. So I grew up in this evangelical bubble inside a Mormon bubble, which... Was an interesting experience, <laughs> uh, but then I, I went off to college um, in Oregon at an evangelical university where I currently teach, actually, and there I discovered for the first time Christian feminism, and I embraced it wholeheartedly very quickly. My freshman year, I remember writing my, um, let's see, in the new, the paper, I think it was even for my Old Testament class, which would have been my first semester. I wrote it, um, it was entitled God is a Feminist, uh, because I had (laughs) recently discovered, um, Christian feminism and feminist theology and I thought it was the best thing ever. (laughs) Um, and then that took me on a really, a really long kind of decade long journey, which at first brought me, I think, deeper into Christianity and then eventually pulled me away from Christianity almost altogether. I was sort of hanging on by a thread. Um, and then I went on in, gradu- in graduate studies in women's writing and feminist theory and went into academia. And then toward the end of my 20s, there were a series of escalating crises in my life that sort of all came together. And the very kind of quick, sudden outcome of that was that I became Catholic- um, really unexpectedly in over a period of about... Well, I decided to become Catholic over a period of about four weeks um, in 2013. So in uh, the beginning of October 2013, I wasn't even really thinking about becoming Catholic. And then by the end of the month, I was um, Googling my local parish and calling up a nun asking about RCIA. So, um, and the the crises were really kind of three three things I would say. One would have just been an escalating spiritual crisis um, as I began to gradually just lose my faith. And um, even though I had a desire for it, I was really only Christian in a very nominal sense. And that was just not very life-giving. So this increasing spiritual malaise and angst about Christianity. And then I also had recently become a mother. So that Um, upended or at least rattled a lot of my deeply held feminist assumptions. Um, And then those two things were beginning to create a kind of professional crisis where I thought, oh, no, I've chosen the wrong vocation. Why am I teaching at a Christian school when I'm really barely a Christian, if I'm really honest? And uh, so all of those things sort of bubbled up into a perfect storm and then in the midst of that, my defenses were down, and I can only really explain it through the work of grace. I became Catholic.
0: <laughs> That's so interesting. Um, so,
1: well, I guess I should say I joined our CIA, right? And then I became Catholic the following spring. But what's interesting about my conversion story is that I I kind of leapt into the church sort of um, without thinking. Well, I mean, not without thinking, but I did it so quickly, almost out of desperation, that once I became Catholic, that was the time when I really began to work through a lot of the intellectual problems I had with some Catholic teachings. And so that was when my worldview began to be completely turned inside out and changed into a Catholic worldview. So in some ways, the most intense part of my conversions happened, my conversion happened after I became Catholic. So most of the the book, you mentioned my book, the majority of the book is spent on the the period of the first two years after I became Catholic, what I call the, the conversion after my conversion.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really an interesting way to, I mean, convert. I think that's so fascinating because you hear most stories and mine is one of those stories where it's a long process of discernment. Like, you know, I mean... Mm-hmm. 10 years prior to me becoming Catholic, I first had my first kind of Catholic encounter. And then from there I was reading different things. And uh, so I think your journey is just so unique in the sense that you just dove in. And then from there uh, kind of had to figure things out, had to work through those different things. So you you you're, you're almost buying into the fact that yes, this church is what it says it is this amazing, incredible grace filled thing. So let's just jump in here and then we'll work out the rest kind of afterwards.
1: Yeah, that was it. I mean, I, I can't say that I like, highly recommend this method of conversion. <laughs> I, I think there's, you know, I, I think as most advice that I give my college students, for example, um, are to do things differently than I did. Um, so I think there's something to be said for the methodical process of discernment rather than the sort of sudden leap. But um, God knew that's probably the only way that I would go. And so I was on the fence and he just pushed me over.
0: Yeah, you know that's that's interesting. I've talked to a few people lately on the podcast who've dealt with the history of the reformation and uh those kind of topics and it just reminds me of of that in the sense that one of the big themes that I've been kind of unpacking and not even on purpose, but just through coincidence and and happenstance of the guests I've been booking back to back has been this idea of and this is I think also relevant for the church today is working to reform the church from within the church rather than mm-hmm. from outside the church so your commun- your conversion story in a sense reminds me of you know you you join the church first and then from within the church you figured out how okay well here's the theology the church gives me how can I make sense of this from within you know, rather than from without, there's a kind of a mm-hmm. funny, a funny connection there that I'm, I'm piecing together. Yeah,
1: yeah and I think uh, I think it's Chesterton who writes about this about how the, you know, he describes I don't know in what work of his, but he describes the Catholic Church as this, you know, this huge cavernous cathedral that from the outside looks like this dilapidated building, but you can only really understand what's inside by entering into it. And I think in my experience that was very much true couldn't really understand and grasp the whole of the catholic cosmos until i was already in there and you know hooked up to the sacraments i think that was a huge part of it i think just where i was spiritually i don't think i could have done a, a discernment without that grace i needed the grace to to be able to begin to even feel the questions i needed to ask in order to have an authentic conversion
0: yeah oh that's so interesting and I completely agree with you as a as a convert myself you know that idea of you I couldn't even imagine what the Catholic faith good and bad the good outweighs the bad but I could (laughs) I couldn't imagine uh some of the things I discovered about Catholicism until I was on the inside already right so it's it's pretty amazing Mm -hmm. yeah so okay I've been embarrassed to admit this, but when I first got in touch with you to come on the podcast, I knew about your perspective on Catholic faith and feminism and gender, and I knew your book and some of your other writing and speaking, but I never connected you with the Church Life Journal. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it dawned on me who you were, I remember I rushed into in the room and said <laughs> to my wife, oh, you never guessed, I just realized who I have coming up on the, on the podcast, <laughs> because I've shared your article before. Uh, I have a um, couple of friends who who have shared it on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and I've mm-hmm. I've read your articles before, and they have come as an absolute huge breath of fresh air. And I've shared them to my non-Catholic Christian friends because um, these are huge topics: gender mm-hmm. um, and and so when I realized that it was you that wrote those articles that I loved so much and had been sharing. When I put those pieces together, mm-hmm. oh, I, I was very excited, I, more excited <laughs> than I was before to have you <laughs> on the show. And I think one thing that you do so well that I loved, um, especially in some of those articles for the Church Life Journal, um, was that you, you underscore the idea um, of a worldview or a lens of, on the world. And I think this is missing in so much of the dialogue that Mm -hmm. dialogue from both sides are coming from a particular worldview. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's not that everyone who (laughs) everyone believes this, this certain thing or everyone doesn't believe this, this certain thing, but people have their own worldviews. So Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could unpack feminism and gender identity as a worldview and I wonder if we can juxtapose that to the Catholic worldview as these two different ways of looking at the world. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> um, so I first, my first instinct is to maybe draw a distinction between feminism and what you call gender identity. Um, because I think increasingly they've become sort of one thing or they've, become kind of meshed together, at least in terms of, you know, mainstream feminism embracing, for example, um, gender fluidity and the transgender movement. Uh, but when I was in graduate school for feminist studies, that was not yet the case. So the the transgender movement was certainly there, but it was still very much on the fringes. And there was a lot of skepticism, um, which I shared with my very secular feminist colleagues towards um, this sort of transgender ideology, because it seemed to quickly kind of erase the the identity of women or to basically say that kind of any man can sort of step into that identity through kind of claiming it or saying that he identifies with it. And um, now there isn't that kind of skepticism, right? It's sort of been embraced wholeheartedly and become one big weird package. Uh, but that wasn't always the case. And I think that's a very kind of recent phenomenon. But uh, feminism is is hard to characterize in a way because there are so many different kinds of feminisms, and when you're a feminist apologist, you can use that to your advantage, because you can say, "Oh well, well that kind of feminism isn't the real feminism, or isn't a good kind of feminism." But you need to be talking about this kind of feminism, right? Sort of like the the no true Scotsman um, fallacy. <laughs> um, and I've I've had my work critiqued a little bit. You know, I guess I've gotten some emails that are um you know very cordial but from from some feminists who have said you know i like what you're saying but i don't think i think you should say most feminisms instead of feminism because there are so many and i think that's true and i that's a valid point but at the same time i think it is possible to speak about particularly mainstream feminism as a co, you know kind of a a clear ideology to which you can respond right um so i would say feminism as an ideology is very much centered on the value of autonomy that's probably its central value and it is very much concerned with equality between men and women Um, and what equality actually looks like can vary between different kinds of feminism Uh, but feminism is very much concerned with power dynamics between men and women and that tends to be kind of the most important sort of filter through which one reads reality, kind of every, almost everything becomes about the power dynamics between men and women mm-hmm. and the, the underlying belief that women are always in some way in the disempowered position. Um, so, you know, feminism is kind of says men and women are equal and then also asserts that there's some big barriers in society that are undermining that equality. And when I've come to realize is that that kind of creates a, an almost self-fulfilling prophecy, or at least a um, it perpetuates feminism because that filter never really changes. It never really sort of updates um, in accord with reality. No matter how many, you know steps toward progress are made in society, it's always still patriarchal. Women are always still oppressed in almost kind of every situation. And so what that has looked like in 21st century America, where the vast majority of women are not oppressed as a class, I would say, what that has tended to look like is that oppression now becomes um, defined by smaller and more minor infractions, like microaggressions, right? Mm -hmm. So where you used to see oppression as, say, like the denial of women the vote, now oppression is manifest when you know, a man spreads his legs on the subway and takes up too much room, or when he interrupts you in a meeting, or when he, you know, mansplains to you about something you already understand. (laughs) Um, So these very kind of minor social interactions, Mm -hmm. which, sure, they might be annoying, um, they become amplified to the level of oppression. Because I think feminism, feminism as an ideology, all ideologies tend toward totalization. So feminism is an ideology that is totalizing, so everything is sort of read through that, um, and uh, so that's that's one way I would define feminism. And now, when you loop, when you loop in gender identity, I would say kind of at the level of worldview, um, and I don't think that, like you mentioned, the uh, the feminist worldview is like clearly and consciously articulated in feminist texts. It's just sort of taken for granted. Uh, whereas I think that's not as true with Catholics, but I think that's probably because in Catholicism, having a worldview matters because it's coherent and it's clear and you can articulate it. Whereas in, I would say, contemporary gender ideology, the worldview is that there is no worldview, basically. Mm. The worldview is that anyone really can kind of create their own reality because there isn't... This objective truth or objective meaning to reality, um, rather what you what you um, create or what you, the meaning you create for yourself, the identity you create for yourself, um, that is what's real, right? Um, so I would say that at the root of a lot of this stuff is a very kind of postmodern and existentialist worldview, um, where you know existence precedes essence. Right? There isn't a givenness or an essence to things. Mm-hmm. But those are things that are constructed through culture, through one sort of auton- autonomous acts of freedom in the world. Um, and so I would say that's very much kind of the... And through language, that's another thing too, that um, you know, gender and what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man, these things are socially and linguistically constructed and therefore... Subject to almost endless kinds of change and transformation.
0: Yeah. See, I love, I think you just do a fantastic job of unpacking that. That's why I loved, I loved your articles so much and I, I shared them so widely. And I did, I had some, I had a surprising amount of, of comments would come when I, whenever I, I posted one of your articles like this from, from multiple Places in my in my social my social mm-hmm. media. I, I have a, a wide variety of different types of, of friends on Facebook. Uh, not in real life. I don't have any friends in real life anymore. We have kids now, but <laughs> on social media, it's, it appears that I have many friends. And I th- I think I think what you get at so fundamentally just so well is that uh, this is a, a a worldview. Right. The idea that there is no worldview. We construct our own kind of meaning or whatnot is an actual kind of a worldview oh yeah right yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and i find that so interesting to articulate because when i'm having these conversations with people whether it's on facebook or uh in in the staff room at work or with, with a friend uh they come at these topics from this just presumed worldview that mm-hmm. that assumes everyone has this worldview and if you mm-hmm. don't have this worldview there's something wrong with you Mm -hmm. right but it is a worldview and there are Mm -hmm. different (laughs) worldviews right (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure so what would you what would you then say how would you juxtapose that with our catholic worldview then
1: Mm. right so so the catholic worldview is that we live in a cosmos Um, we don't live in an accidental universe that is devoid of intrinsic meaning. Um, humans aren't just collections of stardust that randomly have happened and that will someday, you know, disappear in the heat death of the universe or whatever. <laughs> you know, um, rather we live we live in a cosmos. So um, one of the The images, and I think of a Catholic worldview, the image that comes immediately to mind is from St. Hildegard of of Bingen, who's my confirmation saint. She was a 12th century German mystic, abbess, physician, musician. I mean, she was just sort of this amazing, amazing person. But one of her mystical visions that she she describes is the cosmic egg. So she imagines the universe, um, the cosmos that we live in, as an egg and... It's this you can Google it and find you know see the picture from her illuminated manuscripts of what the egg looks like, but it has all these different sort of you know layers to it. Um, but the idea basically is that there there is a, we live in a reality that is a cosmos that was and is in this moment created and held into being by a loving God who wants to make Himself known to us and so everything that exists in the visible and sensible world is part of god's self-revelation so it's charged not only with meaning but a very a very sacred and sacramental kind of meaning so that really changes the conversation about gender specifically because our bodies and our sexual nature becomes part of that sacramental self-revel- self-revelation of god right so it's no longer just this some, you know, an arbitrary state that I give meaning to based on my cultural moment. But our bodies are icons and maleness and femaleness is an icon of the love and um, relationship between God and humankind, right? So that's just one way in which the whole conversations about gender, about sex, all of that changes as soon as you enter a Catholic worldview um, because it is it is sacramental and it is coherent, and it is cohesive, um, and it's a whole with a W, right? Not, not a whole with an H, which would be more like the sort of absence of meaning kind of worldview, or not absence of meaning, but meaning that is solely created or generated by human beings rather than something we discover because it is given to us by God.
0: Hmm. That's so well put. I really love that image, and that to me, I mean, this isn't necessarily in the wheelhouse of this conversation, but that immediately makes me think of the the abortion debate, hmm. right? If yeah, right? If if this is if we are not here as a collection of stardust, but we are, but our worldview informs how we understand our our person and the essence and the existence given to us by God. Well, then of course Catholics would be fighting to protect even the lives of the unborn person because we believe in this fundamental givenness of, of life.
1: Yes. Yeah. There's actually another like illumination of Hildegard that comes to mind when you describe that. And I can't remember exactly what the vision is, but um, some of her illuminations are kind of trippy and it has this depiction of the Trinity, which is like this kind of floating geometric shape. Um, But then there's a woman in kind of the lower corner who's pregnant you can see her little baby inside her womb and there's this almost umbilical cord coming down from the trinity to the baby inside the womb and endowing it with life so that kind of describes as well that you know any kind of life especially human life is imbued with divine sacred meaning and life itself like from the beginning like from the beginning from the womb so to interfere with that is to is just like sever that divine cord right there. You know, a, an unborn baby isn't just connected to the mother but is also already even before birth connected to the the life of the Trinity. Right? So you don't want to get in between in between a baby and the Trinity.
0: <laughs> That's so interesting. It sounds like she's a pretty interesting saint.
1: <laughs> oh, she's super interesting, yeah. Highly recommend. Although, actually, I will say as an aside, beware—you <laughs> want to be a little choosy about the sources you get for Hildegard because um, there are some there are some, some kind of like f- feminist reappropriations of her that try to save her from her Catholicism a little bit. Um, and I think because she was a medieval physician, there's also a lot of um, like naturopaths who are interested in her stuff. So oh. you got to make sure that you get <laughs> you get translations of hers that are they
0: are legit. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I do want to circle back actually to a bit about the abortion uh, topic in mm-hmm. in a minute, but I do want to, I wanted to flesh out this because I've heard you talk about um, masculinity and femininity. And mm-hmm. one thing that strikes me about gender identity issues is how it seems to reinforce these rigid stereotypes. Yeah, I mean, I've sat and listened to somebody tell the story of their biological son who showed an interest literally in pink umbrellas and was more sensitive and emotional than other biological boys, so his parents decided to start treating him like a girl, like a female, like a female. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and I don't mean to be insensitive to the challenges sure. of this situation. I don't mean disrespect for the hearing these stories and the people involved mm-hmm. in them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a weird way, that seemed to me that allowing a fluidity in gender actually seemed just to reinforce those rigid stereotypes. Right. And then I thought of uh, St. John Paul II, who mm-hmm. expressed this rich Catholic understanding of the ideas of masculinity and femininity in such a profound way, a way that I think is a lot more powerful than how it's being expressed by secular society. I, I mean, I think his understanding, which, I, which I've which i heard you unpack as well before in the past, is, is more powerful than mm. the idea of... of the fluidity in gender. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a yeah. bit about that idea, about the masculinity yes. and femininity?
1: Yes. Yeah, well, first of all, I think your analysis is exactly right. And that's one of the, the ironies I see in the way that mainstream feminism has sort of just embraced the transgender phenomenon because transgender identity often reinforces the very kinds of gendered stereotypes that feminism has been trying to you know, disrupt and get rid of, right? And that was one of the reasons I was, when I was in graduate school, I think this would have been maybe in 2007 and first looking into this, this phenomenon, I was, I readily recognized that. I remember watching a documentary, this was when I was living in the UK about transgender children and the, the gender of the children tended to be established by the kinds of things they wanted to own and play with. So it was very it was very material objects mm-hmm. like they liked the color pink they wanted to wear dresses, they love to play with these certain kinds of toys and so de facto they're really a girl, and you know, here I am like a hardcore feminist, thinking, well, you know, in feminist rhetoric, we talk about how yeah, if you it's okay if you're a girl and you don't like pink, girls don't have to play with dolls, right so it was sort of I was part of my skepticism towards it um so i I think that is. I think that is a, a good observation, and I, and I think one of the reasons why um, that's happening is that manhood and womanhood, or masculinity and femininity, have been pretty much, pretty much untethered from the body and from biological sex, so the sex nature of the body. And once what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman is no longer defined by the body, it can only really be defined by these stereotypes, and that is really what's been happening. Um, so John Paul II's use of masculinity and femininity is very different. And and it's really fascinating. It's something I'm still thinking about um, as I try to work through what I think about gender and sex and masculinity and femininity and how we should even use this kind of language um, in in a more kind of Catholic way. And so he uses masculinity and femininity exclusively in reference to male and female bodies. So he never talks about a woman who's masculine or a man who's feminine, right? So for him, masculinity is simply the way of being a male body in the world. So masculinity is very much connected to maleness and vice versa. So... Because of that, the, I guess, box, you might say, of what masculinity looks like is opened up more, I would say, than in kind of a contemporary gender ideology, even Mm -hmm. though they really try to say, we're fluid, we're, you know, whatever. Um, Because then you have, you know, if you have a, a man who tends to be more sensitive, a man who loves art, a man who loves theater, like John Paul II, for example, he was a man who loved the theater. He was an actor and a playwright before he was a priest. Um, He's still a man, right? He's not (laughs) a woman. Um, He's not feminine because of those things. Because as soon as you limit the use of masculinity and femininity to traits or objects normally associated with men and women, um, that's when you begin to step away from manhood and womanhood being really defined first and foremost by the body so I, the more I think about how John Paul II uses those terms, the more I like it and the more I try to use that in my own language, although it's difficult because that is not how co- people conventionally use those terms now, right? Um, but there's something really profound about that. So when I'm, for example, I don't know, let me think of something like super masculine. I don't know. When I'm like lifting a heavy object when i'm like flipping a tractor tire i don't know um i'm i'm feminine in that moment it's not as if like oh i'm masculine now you know and then i'm over here breastfeeding and now i'm feminine no i mean the whole the act is characterized by the person the embodied person doing it therefore what i am doing is is feminine
0: yeah it, i find that so compelling. I gotta say that that was one of the things that, um, when I had shared your articles, when I had read your articles, that just right now I'm a stay at home dad. So oh. I'm, I'm doing a very, I'm doing a very, uh, yeah. feminine in quotes yes. job, right? Yeah. With our two yes. kids. And I get all kinds yeah. of wacky comments from grandmas sure. and people oh, who should, yeah. people who should know better <laughs> out in the, out in public. But, You know i think and i think we're in agreement here that uh the language of masculinity and femininity understood from this this very catholic perspective um by this very uh pope a pope is an awfully catholic kind of person yes you know so most of the time (laughs) yeah yeah, you know we should should put a little asterisk there this particular pope was a very catholic person and and you know and that's such a, that to me is a much more affirming way of understanding masculinity mm-hmm. and femininity than mm-hmm. what the world presents me. Because I can still yes. be a, a, a male. I can still be mm-hmm. a, a dad and do these so called feminine kind of jobs. You know, I can still have a kid raise a kid who likes pink umbrellas right. without having to define, now redefine. That mm-hmm. as a well, that pink umbrella is a feminine thing to like. So right. this this boy must be more female than male. No, he's just a right. boy who who likes right. pink umbrellas. I mean Right,
1: exactly. Yeah. My husband's a stay at home dad. So we have a you know, we have kind of unconventional in that way sort of, um, situation where I'm the female breadwinner and, you know, he's the, so I know exactly what you're talking about, right? Um, (laughs) and I think that shaped some of my thinking in this way because, you know, Michael does, um, like all of our cooking, I'm a terrible, terrible cook and he's wonderful. He's just, he's great in the kitchen. Like he knows what's up and it's not as if he's suddenly like feminine when he's cooking us dinner. Like, no, he's a man cooking dinner, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, an idea I've been toying around with that I, I I want to develop more is almost that masculinity and femininity have to be talked about, or they must be almost represented as icons rather than spoken about in kind of definitions. Like I think about um, the, the kind of typical, let me statues of Mary and Joseph, for example. So you have Mary who's, you know, usually holding the infant Jesus, you know, And then you have statues of St. Joseph, and he's often holding the infant Jesus as well. So both of those depict um, people that are nurturing and loving and faithful, but yet one is doing this as a display of masculinity, and one is doing this as a display of femininity. So when I think about masculinity and femininity, I tend to think about Mary and Joseph and almost with a picture in my mind rather than this kind of list this like laundry list of traits right so that's an idea that i'm thinking about but
0: yeah that is such a compelling representation i you're absolutely right we do you know we do see what a great picture we do see both Joseph and Mary holding the infant Jesus that's the right that is right. such a that is such a powerful reframing of that idea oh i love that
1: yeah
0: so I tried once to comment about the abortion debate on Facebook, and it it didn't go well. (laughs) Really? That's so shocking to me. (laughs) Surprisingly. So I literally literally sat around for an hour trying really hard to craft the most philosophically succinct statement that I could Mm -hmm. to try and express what I thought was a major cause of confusion. And it's the idea that pro-life people wanted to trample over women's bodily autonomy because I had friends who were posting these horrible memes about awful men controlling their bodies, and I struggled to try and explain that it was about rights. The mm-hmm. right not to take a life of what I understood to be a human person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Could you talk a bit about how your journey into motherhood maybe uh, like reframed the abortion side of feminism for you, and mm-hmm. how you understand it now as a Catholic mother? sure
1: so when i became a mother well first of all when i became pregnant for the first time i was super sick with my first pregnancy um just couldn't even really sit up for weeks without vomiting it was really horrible um so at first it kind of added fuel to the fire of my kind of pro-choice feminism you know and i was thinking oh like no woman should have this forced upon her right um but then about 12 weeks into my pregnancy, I had to have a an ultrasound because there was something funky with our umbilical cord. And you usually don't have in routine pregnancies, you don't have routine ultrasounds at that time. You usually have one like right away and you can see the little like lima bean in there and you're like, oh, that's a baby, I guess. But, <laughs> um, you know, you can see the heartbeat. It's amazing. And then you usually have one mid-pregnancy when the baby's so big you can only see like oh here's a leg <laughs> you know here's the the face that looks kind of creepy and like a skull because of the ultrasound but it's a baby I promise you know <laughs> um, so the twelve weeks ultrasound it's an amazing time to have an ultrasound because the baby's small enough that you can see the whole body on the screen at once so you can see all the movements right um, and. I was shocked because this was still in the first trimester. This is still in the first trimester. And I saw like a perfectly formed tiny human in my womb who was just kicking around, you know, just having a great time, like doing flips. He was sucking his thumb. I could see his, you know, his heartbeat, of course, and I could see his brain. It looked like cauliflower. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I had no idea that so early, even within the first trimester, the, this is very obviously a human being that is alive, right? And who has um, self-generated movements, right? I mean, clearly we're connected through the umbilical cord, but this is a human being and this is a human being that's alive. And so that began to rattle me a bit because I think even even when, when I was sort of pro-choice, I, I tried to like be kind of moderate, you know, where I thought, well... Late term abortion, like that's clearly when the baby's a baby. But you know, up to sort of like eighteen weeks, you know, it's probably you know you're really kind of in this gray zone where it's it's kind of okay to you know end things. So that really that really changed things for me, I think. And after that experience, uh, when I at the time I was much more active on social media than I am now, and um, I began to have a different emotional reaction to the sort of Twitter feminists or whatever, like, shout your abortion, or I'm so glad I had an abortion, and, oh, shoot, I I feel so left out because I haven't had an abortion, you know? So this <laughs> kind of really flippant attitude towards something like that suddenly just, you know, seems super – something wrong with that, you mm-hmm. know? It just kind of made, left me cold, and I thought, okay, there's something wrong here. Um, so that really – that really began to change that early on. But then, also, once I actually had Julian, my son, my oldest son, um, and experienced the whole sort of childbirth thing and breastfeeding and um, that whole experience of having my life suddenly tethered in this very intense way. Um, and he happened to be, you know, a boy too, right? So, my life was suddenly tethered to this male life. Mm. And all of a sudden, my kind of worldview that had been so hyper-focused on women's issues and girls' issues, which of course are very important, now all of a sudden I was sort of like, my attention was, uh, my curiosity was awakened about, well, what kind of issues do boys face specifically? What sort of struggles do boys go through? Um, How can I make sure my son you know, grows up healthy and thriving and all that kind of stuff? So that began to kind of pry open my worldview a bit. Um, And also it really showed me how the central feminist virtue and value of autonomy, it no longer explained my life. It no longer had the explanatory power that it did because my life was now no longer autonomous. It never had been, but you can kind of believe that you're autonomous when you're like young and healthy (laughs) and 20 or, you know, college educated, whatever. You can be like, yeah, I'm autonomous, you know. But the truth is, you know, human beings are very dependent you know, we're, you know, we're dependent upon the natural world. We're dependent upon other human beings. We're dependent upon God. We're dependent upon our neighbor. And our lives are very much interconnected. And pregnancy and childbirth really bring this to the forefront. It's, it's like this kind of flashing sign like, hey, guess what? Human beings aren't autonomous, right? That's sort of what pregnancy reveals and motherhood reveals. And so I began to kind of wake up out of that that dream i guess that i was i was autonomous or that i had bodily autonomy and i think that's one of the central i guess miscommunications or problems in the abortion debate because from the pro-choice side autonomy is what's most important and it is achievable like that's like women have autonomy or should have autonomy but the problem is the very reality Biological reality of pregnancy, childbirth, lactation, those reveal that in fact women don't have autonomy in the same way that men do by the very nature of the way our our entire body, our entire physiology is organized mm. according to the reality of facilitating a human life within oneself, right? So our entire physiology is organized not toward autonomy, but toward, I don't know what you would call it, like symbiosis or whatever, intersubjectivity, maybe. Um, So uh, when you, I think that's one of the problems of feminism because it's really, since it's built on autonomy, it creates this sort of conflict between women and their bodies. And it basically says that for women to really be free and to be empowered, they have to be as much like men as possible. And so for mainstream Western feminism, what freedom has looked like for women is basically war against their fertility and war against, you know, um, the possibility of pregnancy because autonomy is so central and so important.
0: Yeah. And this is what I actually wanted to 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 roll into here with because you you write so profoundly of the idea of say contraception in all of this the idea that uh, women want to be able to or I guess the feminist movement certain parts of feminism want to prevent pregnancy and you know I've I've heard a ridiculous number of Catholic converts who are drawn in first as the first mm-hmm. foot in the door by the church's profound teaching on contraception, yeah. which I think is kind of funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I know a lot of people who are drawn in by that. Mm-hmm. So could you unpack this a bit for us and how traditional feminism understands that idea of control over the body mm-hmm. and then maybe the dangers and confusions in there and the, the rich Catholic response to that? Sure.
1: Yeah. So I think um one of the one of the sort of foundational texts of western feminism I would say that was very influential on second wave feminism would be um Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, which was written in the 1940s. Um and in it she describes how women by our biological nature are we're enslaved to the species in a way that men aren't. She, you know, she talks about the very things I was just talking about but in a very negative way, um that women because so Simone de Beauvoir was working very much within an existentialist framework where what freedom looks like is to transcend the kind of factual reality of your existence as much as possible through projects, through things you create, right? And so because you know, so for women, motherhood and pregnancy and those things are so all-consuming, and they limit women's freedom in an existentialist sense, um, that the best thing women can do would be to live in a socialist utopia where they have you know, free access to abortion um, and contraception so they're able to finally free themselves from these things that enslave them. Um, so I think you can look at some of the seeds of the ideas that are still very much alive in in feminism from that text, Um, because feminism, even though as a feminist, I never would have said this, I would have said, no, 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 of course, like, if you're a feminist, you can be a mother, you know, that can, if that's your choice, that's great, you know, it was basically about choices, like, as long as you choose freely what you choose, that's fine, Uh, but there still very much is this ambivalence toward motherhood and fertility um, in Kind of contemporary ideology and especially feminist ideology, because I think fertility for women is seen as it's it's seen as a pathology, um, something to be kind of controlled and feared, almost like an STD. You know, like oh, mm-hmm. don't have sex, you might get herpes or you might get pregnant. Well, you know, as if it's this mm-hmm. unnatural thing that could happen to you. That you know, yeah, you're you're 16. Like, get on the pill. You know, that's your sort of happy freedom pill that you take every morning to make sure that you can be empowered. Um, so I, and I would have said that, you know, as a feminist, I, you know, I said things like, you know, contraception is the linchpin of a woman's freedom, you know, and that's what I believed. You know, I, i I really thought that. Um, I was never quite so convicted about abortion. I think I always had a little bit of ambivalence down deep about abortion, but not contraception. I was like, oh yeah, gung ho about it for sure. Um, but I think ironically what contra- you know contraception is just part of this wider phenomenon that you know women need to kind of wage war go into battle with their own physiology in order to achieve this empowered and free ideal, which is really based much more on um a male male biology, kind of an idealized vision of what it means to be a man where you can have you know. Sex until your eyes pop out, and you'll never get pregnant, right? Like, that's sort of the expectation that, well, women should be this way too. And then they'll finally be free and we can finally have equality, right? So, women's fertility and fecundity and the potential for this sort of intersubjective relation is a threat to that. And so it has to be sort of tightly controlled.
0: Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. It's the, it's making the, the, you said earlier making a woman more like a man in that sense Mm -hmm. right
1: yeah yeah
0: rather than and I think I think you've unpacked this this phenomenally Mm -hmm. the idea that those things that make uh, a woman's body designed to be depended on by something else by another living Mm -hmm. being that's there's a richness in there that um we're missing out on if we just treat men and women as the same thing and try and make them physiologically the same.
1: Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Not only that, but I I mean, I think that I, I think this really highlights, you know, going back to the question of worldview, the stark difference between a feminist worldview, where sort of the objective is, you know, freedom in this kind of existentialist sense, like, you know, freedom, equality, power, autonomy. Um, whereas in the Catholic view, the the goal of life is self-gift. The goal of life is to give up oneself. It's actually to give up power, right? Um, so that's also the relationship with power, I think, is a key way in which Christianity and feminism really cut and kind of cut against each other in I think, irreconcilable ways. You
0: know, I, I find it interesting just how many people are drawn in by the, the Catholic worldview on things like contraception. Have you done anything in your writing or research to kind of unpack the, the draw of that idea? Like what is pulling people in, mm-hmm. um, what it makes that so compelling?
1: I think that's a good question, and I can only speculate because I haven't done a lot of, like, research. Um, but one thing I would think about is, first of all, for a worldview that is skeptical about contraception, Catholicism is the only game in town, you know? Like, it's the lone holdout mm, yeah. on this issue. So I for anyone who, for whatever reason, becomes ambivalent about contraception, you know, that then Catholicism becomes almost the kind of only real alternative or offers the only real alternative. It offers the only real kind of ro- robust explanations for why that might be. Um, so I think that's part of it. But, you know, I, there is research that's coming out about certainly effects of, on the birth control pill, um, negative effects of the birth control pill. There was a recent study about how birth control pill leads to depression in women um certainly it's long been known that it has um carcin, you know, it can lead to estrogen dependent breast cancer. Um it's bad for the environment, you know. Weird things are happening to fish. Mm. <laughs> um there's so there are all kinds of there's all kinds of little kind of ways of fallout from the birth control pill. There I've read some interesting things about how it actually kind of changes subtly dynamics between men and women because um, some of the kind of subtle cues and sort of mating rituals between men and women depend on the kind of neurochemical things that are happening when a woman is fertile, right? And then, um, you know, like, even for like for one example, being on the pill can just totally devastate your libido, which is sort of ironic if you're, you know, getting on it in order to be able to have sex without having a baby. But then you get on it and you're like, yeah, who wants to have sex anyway, you know? So um, I think they're... There are a lot of ways in which um, uh, one can kind of find um, birth control less than satisfying. I know some women who use NFP just because being on the pill makes them, you know, gives them very unstable moods, makes gives them depression, anxiety, all kinds of stuff. So, you know, they just, and there's there's a movement as well just toward like everything being natural, right? So um, natural family planning or fertility awareness methods. Those fit in quite neatly with people who, you know, want to eat healthy, want to reduce the sort of artificial synthetic hormones they're pumping into their bodies, right? Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons to be ambivalent about, about birth control. Um, and yeah, once you become ambivalent, especially if you're a Christian, you know, then if you're, if you're a Christian, you're already sort of open to the basic narrative of the Christian worldview and once you really hear a compelling theology about why contraception is not good um it's very compelling i think it's it's hard to to unhear that
0: yeah i think that i i love how you frame frame that as the catholic church kind of being the only game in town right that's what, yeah. And, yeah. and you're right and a lot of these people that i I'm, that I'm thinking of would have been christian and then yeah became became skeptical of contraception and looking at different i i I can think of a few stories of people who had gone to like an nfp natural a natural family planning say workshop that happened to be at a catholic church and that was their first draw into the wider catholic Mm -hmm. worldview because it was the only game in town offering this alternative narrative about the human body and and contraception
1: right yeah and i live and work in a in a more of a Protestant context and, you know, I know, you know, quite a few Protestants who who use NFP um, and who are, who are interested in it. You know, I, I teach college students and, you know, I've had st- some of my female college students come and ask me about it because they're interested, you know, and um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty cool thing. And, you know, it kind of drives me crazy when I hear, you know, and it's usually – Not to be, not to paint with a broad brush, but it's usually like middle-aged white men who are like, oh, I hate that, you know, the Catholic Church is so mean to women, doesn't let them have contraception. Um, And it drives me crazy because, you know, I'm like, you know what, I'm so grateful for this because this is the first, this is, you know, the first sort of worldview that has given permission to me to embrace my fertility and to not actually be at war with my own body but to see who I am and how I'm designed as good. So I, you know, I've, 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 I'm lucky in the sense that I've, I know what the other side of the fence looks like, right? Like I've been, I've been in contraceptive promiscuous relationships. I've been in a contraceptive marriage situation. And now I've been in an NFP marriage situation And I've never looked back. I've never looked wistfully back over my shoulder thinking, oh, if only I could be on the pill again. Never. You know? So, and I'm grateful for that because I do have some friends who've always been Catholic and who've always done NFP thinking, oh, the the pill must be great. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it comes with its own baggage. It's not actually that great. This is so much better because, um, which doesn't mean it's easy, you know? It's hard. It can be very difficult. Um, but in terms of my own sense of dignity and self-respect, it it has endowed me with that in a way that nothing else has. Hmm. So yeah, and you put, I'm very grateful. You, you,
0: know. you put that so well. And that makes me think of a, a bit earlier in our conversation, just talking about the ideas of masculine and feminine. I mean, to me, so much in the Catholic worldview around these sexual identity questions, around questions of masculine and feminine, around contraception and control of our bodies. To me, it often is so much more freeing than the secular narrative, or even the narrative Mm -hmm. that I had as an evangelical Christian. The the Catholic... Mm -hmm. And it's kind of funny because it, it seems more restrictive. It seems more rules-based when you look at it from the outside, mm-hmm. outside that cathedral. The Catholicism seems like this rules-based, really judgy kind of, <laughs> you want to ruin your marriage and your, and your. I don't want to say sex life, but I, I just did. You don't want to ruin these, <laughs> these things, right? Yeah. But then once you're inside, this worldview actually seems to be a lot larger and more freeing, I think, than the mm-hmm. secular narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think so. I think, I think that's
1: definitely true. And one of the most striking things, you know, there are several and Humanae Vitae, was it Pope Paul VI? Is that who it was?
0: I think so. Yep.
1: Okay. I'm just going to go with that. So, uh, he, you know, when he wrote Humanae Vitae, he made some predictions about how society would change if, you know, uh, the birth control were embraced, the birth control birth control, whatever. Um, and one of them was that you know, the dignity of woman would really fall by the wayside and that societal attitudes towards women would drastically change. And I don't think there's anything that he was more right about than that. Hmm. Um, When you just – I mean, even if you just think of how, like, the depiction of women in movies and music and advertising, you know, kind of now compared to, say, the the 60s or the 50s or whatever – it's so radically different. You know, the sexualization and objectification of women has just been cranked up since um, since the uh, since the embrace of birth control. And the pornification of society um, has really become. if there's one area where I think you can point to and say, okay, there is where the oppression of women is still alive, I would say that. the sexualization and pornification of our culture. Like that's one way in which I would say women as a class are still um, oppressed and controlled in that way. But ironically, I would say a lot of it you could trace back to things that the feminist movement helped win for women, Hmm. you know, Um, like contraception and abortion, which basically then, you know, established the idea that, yeah, women should be able to have sex on demand and men should be able to ask that of them. And that's where kind of our freedom and value lies. So,
0: yeah, I have a sister, Helena Burns, coming up on the podcast and she's big on, she's big on theology of the body and Humanity and she talks about how, you know, contraception is the thing which just launched all of the sexualization of women in in TV and music and movies and the whole pornographic, Mm -hmm. you know. She that's that's what she bases this on, right? This is what began all that th- all that stuff, yeah. and I think for me, I mean, I mean Vitae is like my go-to evangelical tool these days for my my mm-hmm. non-Catholic Christian friends. I'm like, well, if you're unsure about the Catholic Church look what look what they wrote back, you know, mm-hmm. back here, and how true this has become. Like, this is what our worldview. I- said and you can see how succinct it is and how you know what it's it's, it was pretty prophetic right and we're the only game in town that still that still Mm -hmm. says this is how i know know. we're
1: the we're the weird holdouts you know and i love that about catholicism right so it it always drives me crazy like for example i just read um a secular age by charles taylor which i really liked i like charles taylor a lot Mm -hmm. but in his chapter on the sexual revolution he throws shade at you know the church hierarchy for not allowing birth control. And I was like, come on, Charles, like you're totally misreading this, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah.
0: Okay. So I have one more question for you and it's time to get a little bit pastoral if we can. So you work on a college campus, you write Mm -hmm. and speak right in the thick of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is the Catholic response to feminism and gender issues And what would you hope that a non-Catholic Christian would take away from this episode if they walk away with with something?
1: Those are great questions. Um, I think the best response to uh, the issues of feminism and gender that we've been talking about is a... I want to choose my words here. I would say a very unabashed and clear articulation of the Catholic worldview as a whole and how the issues of gender and sexuality fit into that. Because when I was growing up as an evangelical, I was taught a lot of rules about sexuality, about what you should and shouldn't do, and kind of biblical verses that supported those rules, but I was never really given a robust sense of the why Behind those rules, mm. until I became Catholic, and I think that's what young people are really hungry for. Like young people don't need rules; they don't need someone sort of chiding them and saying, "Oh, don't do this or don't do that." Um, but young people are hungry for meaning. You know, they they are hungry for meaning, and they're sincerely seeking meaning. And I think the the kind of meaning that pop narratives give them, you know, that burns out really quickly. It might it might seem fun at first, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't fill you in the way that a robust Christian worldview can. And the Catholic worldview, when articulated well, um, is, is compelling and it's coherent in a way that I don't think there's any other worldview on offer has the kind of coherence that the Catholic worldview does. And that's very compelling. And I think actually what the kind of difficult parts of the Catholic worldview add to its compellingness, I don't know if that's the right (laughs) word, but it makes it compelling because um, it asks something of you, right? I mean, the worldview that I kind of cobbled together for myself when I was this like postmodern Christian feminist, blah, 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 it never asked anything of me. It just affirmed everything I did. It just affirmed all my choices and tried to make me feel good about myself. It was very therapeutic, um, but the kind of worldview that asks something of me, but then in turn gives my life such a greater sense of meaning, that's going to be much more compelling. Um, and I think that is is a better response than even kind of getting down into the fray about, you know, this issue, this issue, because our, I think our discourse right now it's very fragmented. Like everything's kind of fragmented. Like, what's your stance on this issue? What's your stance on this issue? What's this politician's stance on this and this and this? And you kind of cobble together these different stances that you have on things. Um, but the Catholic worldview is a whole, and you got to take it as a whole or not. Because if you sort of decide, I don't like this particular piece, then you pull that thread and it all begins to unravel. Right. Mm. Um, So that's what I think is the best sort of response. It's not necessarily to like, you know, dive into the sort of culture war clashes and that often toxic kind of discourse. But I think it's in a way to kind of stand to the side and strongly emphatically and lovingly to articulate the Catholic worldview, particularly on these
0: issues. Oh that's such a fantastic answer. Thank you for that. You know, I I've, I've tried to get I've, I've tried to get my my lovely wife on this podcast several times. I joked that she should co-host with me and help bounce me out. And I wish she was here right now because she had this this conversation on Facebook recently that I, over uh, with some friends of ours based on this comic of this inclusive Jesus. And mm. it was one of these <laughs> things you're talking about. It was one of these little small little issues. And what what she tried to do was step back and frame this in the context of her Catholic worldview, our Catholic worldview, mm-hmm. rather than just talking about the small thing. But then right. I think what happens is everyone kind of goes what, mm-hmm. <laughs> because everybody is caught up in talking about these small little these small little fragmented issues, yes, through their own worldview lens. And mm-hmm. if we could all step back and just. Look at the lenses we're looking at this through, and mm-hmm. have this discussion on a more holistic kind of level. I feel like it might be a bit more successful, and and that's what was was going on in this conversation, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think that's yeah, I think that's totally right.
0: Uh, it was just so interesting. So I, this is a fantastic uh, response. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Hey, There's
1: s- a the second part of your qu- you had two questions. What was the what would Non Catholic Christians, what would I want them to take away? Yeah, or what would I, you, leave, I yeah. think
0: you kind of answered that. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: well, I guess I would add, and this is something I tell my students a lot, because most of my, the vast majority of the students I teach are not Catholic, right? Um, and I teach in a great books program where it's chronologically structured. So the first three semesters, well, the, f- the first couple of years were, were kind of pre Reformation. And so we're, once Christianity starts, we're reading a lot of pre Reformation Christian thinkers. So a lot of Catholic and Orthodox. Theology. Um, And one thing that I encourage my students to do is to realize that this is their legacy as well. Like, this is their heritage. Not to sort of think, oh, Augustine's a Catholic, you know, he's not my kind of Christianity or whatever, but to see that this tradition, this is something that you can also
0: Hmm.
1: be a part of and learn from, and that you don't have to just feel lost in the present trying to figure out all this stuff on your own. But there's this rich, intellectually, um, yeah, this intellectually robust, rich tradition that has been thinking about these very questions for millennia. And you can participate in that conversation. You can eavesdrop on these great thinkers and you can be formed by them, you know? And I think it, it alleviates a lot of pressure and like loneliness, you know? I think... I think it was Chesterton, he uses this phrase, which I love, which is called, I think it's an account of his own conversion. He talks about becoming Catholic freed him from the tyranny of the present. Mm, yes. And so, yes. I, yeah. Oh, I love that um, too. I, yeah, and that's a very real tyranny, I think, that we live under. Um, and so I guess I would encourage any Christian to to seize onto that tradition um, and really let it form you.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. That just makes you think of the the phrase that I just loathe that idea of being on the right side of history.
1: Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> right? And that's exactly oh, what yeah. Chesterton's addressing in a way, right? Yes. You know, yeah, totally. the the Catholic, I think the quote is the Catholic Church is the only thing that frees someone from being a a slave yeah, tyran- yeah. yeah, Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. like a put our two parts to together. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah something like that. But it is the idea of And I love that idea. And that that for me as a convert was just enormous for me when I suddenly realized that I didn't need to, because I did as an evangelical, I needed to figure out all the pieces of my theology, right? And I think you felt the same way. Mm -hmm. And suddenly becoming a Catholic, no, there was 2,000 years of thought on all of these things. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. could, I've likened it to be able to relax or lean into the, the arms of the church in a sense to yes. know that these things yeah. have been thought about absolutely. before me.
1: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I think we also need to get comfortable with being misunderstood. I remember when I first became Catholic. So the hardest issue for me to change my mind on was same sex marriage um, by far. Oh, that was grueling, man. That was very, very sort of tumultuous kind of, internal transformation um, which I write about in my book if you want to know more (laughs) Um, but uh, so that was really difficult and I remember thinking like because this was happening right when the Supreme Court decision came down right when the Obergefell or whatever decision came down and I was like oh this is the worst time to become Catholic you know for for years I'd been you know like waving my rainbow flag like I can't wait for you know gay marriage to be legalized and then as soon as it does I'm like Catholic and now I'm like dang it um, so I, I remember thinking, like, this is the worst time to become Catholic. And and then I sort of realized, like, that, no, there's there's never a great time to become Catholic because the Catholic Church will always be at odds on some point with the broader culture, and that's good, right? So mm. there's always this part of conversion that's going to have to be painful and where you're going to have to sacrifice some sacred cows because if you've been shaped by the popular culture and then you become catholic there's going that's going to be a painful transition because there's going to be you're going to have to take upon yourself some beliefs and opinions that are anathema from the kind of broader secular worldview you know so to be catholic is to be countercultural to be christian is to be countercultural in one way or another um Otherwise, the church is in trouble. You know, if the church ever loses that distinctiveness and is no longer countercultural, then something's gone, gone awry.
0: Yeah, and I like how you mentioned earlier that the Catholic worldview, as you came into it, was something that required something of you and didn't just mm-hmm. affirm all the ideas that you had. Yes, I think of myself. I I was unpacking the. I'm in Canada, so for us, same-sex marriage Mm -hmm. has been a thing for a long, long time. Yeah. But it became a thing again, kind of in in popular culture again, when, like you say, in the U.S. and the Supreme Court thing was going through. And I remember sitting with really good, devout Christian evangelical friends with a pile of books in front of us of all different sides of the argument, trying to figure out which one made the most sense and was the most compelling and and most, in quotes, biblical. And like, Mm -hmm. it it was this crazy kind of, um, somebody recently said, I can't remember where I heard it, but the idea that becoming Catholic means you no longer have to be the Pope anymore. You can give up being the Pope, right? And it was just this freeing thing where suddenly, Mm -hmm. as you become Catholic, well, you know, the church has this worked out. I mean, you have to decide to submit to that, what the church is is teaching on this and accept Mm -hmm. that as being what is is right and true but it mm-hmm. but it allows you to not have to pour over all of these texts and figure out which theology makes the most sense
1: right right which is always kind of a dangerous game because you know what i'm like a i'm a 35 year old you know i've spent let's see, maybe like let's see I've, I've been reading for 30 years maybe let's say you know i've been literate for 30 years and, you know, the expectation that I'm going to be able to kind of come in and figure out the best sort of stance or course of action based on my very limited experience and my own kind of blind spots and biases and to be able to do that kind of on my own. I mean, you know, albeit like with, you know, through the Holy Spirit and prayer and that kind of discernment, you know, but at the same time, like I don't have that kind of trust in myself, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of faith that I'm yeah that i'm that and and that i don't have that faith in my own authority in that way yeah um, which is why i'm so grateful for the church and her authority
0: yeah you know, that's that's well put i had i've had friends i've had good friends i've i've met people online who've written to me uh through my blog or things in the podcast who've who've walked away from like an evangelical christian faith because of that feeling because they felt right. like they couldn't figure out what made the most sense on their mm-hmm. own, right? And I've tried to present this this Catholic worldview, Catholicism, in mm-hmm. as best of light as I can, but it really breaks mm-hmm. my heart to see people in this mess of the culture that we're kind of in now, and there's so many different ideas, and we're in this kind right. of a post-truth, strange malaise of mm-hmm. opinion, who look at the Bible, right. and look at theologians they like, and try and figure out, well, who has the best corner on this market Mm -hmm. and and just give up and walk away because it's just too much and i think the catholic i think i think the catholic church presents such a succinct alternative to that frustration Mm. Mm -hmm. yes
1: yeah i agree and it's not as if you become catholic and just turn off your brain and become this autonomous you know autonomon or what's the word Anyway, robot, I'll say robot, <laughs> even though like, you become this robot, like, I no longer have to think for myself. Um, but the nice thing is, I can choose to delve into what I want to choose on. I can I can do a deep dive into, you know, the church's view of marriage or theology of the body if I want to. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I haven't looked into as a Catholic, like, let's say, for example, the, um, the kind of stance on war the church has or whatever, you know, I... I haven't really read much about that. Like I know what it is. I know it's in the catechism, but because I've taken my most difficult questions to the church and come away sort of transformed by her wisdom, I'm now willing to seed these other things and say, okay, like at some point I'll probably want to look into this too and understand it better and have my own thinking transformed. But for the meantime, I'm content to trust the church and let her hold that for me. You know, and then if there's a point when I want my sort of intellect formed in that way, you know, I can do that. But there also isn't this pressure to sort of have everything figured out, you know, to kind of write my own catechism.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's so well put. (laughs) Hey, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, this has been fun. This has been fantastic. Where can people find out more about you, what you're doing, what you're writing? You have a book?
1: I do. Yeah. So um, I have a book you mentioned. It's called Into the Deep an unlikely catholic conversion and you can get it on Amazon or any of the sort of big online booksellers and or you can get it directly from the publisher i think for a little a little more of a discount at whipfandstock.com. that's w i p f and stock.com and i i have like one like tiny little pinky toe still on social media i have like an author facebook page which i i usually post if i when i publish essays or do podcasts, I'll put it on there. So for, for folks who've wanted to kind of follow my work, that's a way to sort of check in and see if there's anything new. Um, otherwise I'm available by email. (laughs) I don't really do, I don't really do social media much, but, um, I, I still write for church life fairly regularly and, um, other places here and there. So yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I had a guest mm-hmm. early on in the podcast. He said, "Well, they could friend me on Facebook if they want." That was kind of the <laughs> only thing that that on the right, yeah. So you you still have a pinky toe out there. That's good. That's good.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't have like a personal Facebook account anymore, but I kept that um, that author page. So. Yeah, that's probably a good yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay thank you so much for being mm-hmm. on the podcast this has been phenomenal yeah. i was looking forward yeah, to this thank you. for a long time and this did not disappoint at all i think listeners are going to love this conversation so thank you so Good. much well i'm
1: glad to hear that i was in my brain's been in summer mode so i was a little bit like okay i've got to get in the game you know and i have noticed too that the longer i'm catholic the harder it is for me to remember how i used to think so um, <laughs> sometimes i have to think okay now what what is the feminist worldview again like i have to sort of go back in
0: time and try to remember. But. Oh, that's funny because I had the exact same thing happen to me recently and somebody asked a question about something similar to this and I thought my my response was prefaced by, "Well, I'm kind of steeped in this Catholic worldview, so I'm going to try and like rewind my brain to explain <laughs> right. this." But it was the same, yeah, it was very right. similar. Yeah. All right.
1: Well, thank you so much.
0: Yeah, I'm great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed this conversation. I think it was a really challenging one and a really illuminating one. Something that Dr. Fabali said actually in this podcast has been resonating with me, has been kicking around in my brain ever since she said it. And it was the idea that our worldview needs to challenge us to something, not just affirm everything that we already believe. I think that's so important to underscore. Our worldview, the Catholic worldview, challenges us to be a better person, to subscribe to something holier, to become a saint. That, I think, is incredible. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find it. Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, TunedIn, FM, all those different places. On iTunes, please rate and review this podcast that helps to push this podcast out to new people and it's very important for growing our audience. And I really appreciate that. Visit thecordialcatholic.com for show notes and more information on where to find out about Dr. Favalli and what she's up to. Please email me at cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love to know who you are, where you're listening from, and why you're listening. If you want to support this show, please visit patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. I have some fantastic patrons and I pray for you guys every single day and really appreciate the opportunity to do this work. Even $1 a month helps to support the podcast with hosting fees and internet bandwidth and all that fun stuff that comes with hosting a podcast. Thanks so much to those already supporting me with their prayers, fasting, and financial support. I'm on Facebook at The Cordial Catholic, on Twitter at Cordial Catholic. Please drop me a line and I'll talk to you next week. God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.